Morning, church. Let's pray. Let's turn to the Lord's word in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Father, we, we look to you this morning for strength, for life, for direction, for hope. We look to you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see Christ with clarity, to see the work that you, Father, Son, and Spirit have done, to see that we're able to be reconciled to you ransomed from slavery to sin and adopted as your sons and daughters. So we pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over this week and the next three weeks, we're going to be thinking together about God's purpose for marriage. We take that up next week and the week after in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, But this week we wanted to take a running start and go back to the beginning and think about God's glorious design for this institution of marriage. And then in the final week, we're going to think together about God's mission for marriage, what he intended us to do. So in this room are people quickly losing hope in their marriage. And in this room are people processing a failed marriage. And in this room are people who are grieving a marriage that ended in death. And in this room are people longing, hoping, praying for a marriage that God has not yet provided. And in this room are people feeling guilty over the ways that you've sinned against the marriage that God has given you. And in this room are people who are satisfied and delighted in their marriages. And in this room are people disoriented and humbled over marriages around them that disintegrated. And in this room are people who feel joyfully called to a life of singleness for the sake of the gospel. Young and old, married, single, divorced, and widowed, united together in a church body. Over the last month of sermons, we've thought together about our life as a church And how as a church we live together as a body. And how we speak the truth in love to one another as the means by which the Holy Spirit strengthens us to live as the church, to live as the body of Christ. This week we turn to take in the view of God's glorious design for marriage. And depending on where you're at, marriage may not feel all that glorious. It may feel disappointing and painful. Even great marriages have valleys where the relationship just takes more work. Or marriage may not feel all that glorious because you're not in one right now and you would really like to be. And here's my goal this morning. I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would help us to love God's design for marriage more. The main idea this morning is that God created marriage and therefore has the authority to design it. As creator, He can design it out as he intended. And I'm praying that we leave here this morning honoring God's intent for marriage more and enjoying his gift in marriage more and trusting the Redeemer that he provided for all of us more. Because here's the reality that we'll find particularly in Ephesians 5 over the next two weeks. Our marriages point to something greater. Our marriages and our singleness can point to a far greater reality. 
that the church is in fact engaged to Christ. And we're all hoping together, single and married, for that great marriage supper of the Lamb, which is where I want to end this morning. But before I go any further, I'm going to lay out a few disclaimers. I expect to make some mistakes this morning and over the next three weeks. This is a complex topic with lots of texture, and there are a lot of us in the room coming at this from a variety of different places. So I've sought to love you this week by prayerfully preparing the sermon that I'm about to preach. You can love me back by listening as graciously and generously as you can. The second disclaimer disclaimer is this. I think we all need to be pressed a little bit to think beyond ourselves and to think together as a body of Christ, to think beyond our specific station to what God has called us to do as a body of Christ, as married and single people. Here's the third disclaimer. We're not going to treat these three passages exhaustively. We're going to parachute into all three of them, and we're looking to see what they tell us about God's design for marriage. So let's begin in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, honor God's intent. Genesis chapter 1, first book in the Bible, chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. Marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is a divine creation. It is not a social construct. It is a divine creation. And therefore, we don't stop honoring marriage because marriage has fallen out of fashion. Marriage is good. Marriage is eternal. Marriage came from the heart and mind of a good, wise God. Look at verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I realize the word marriage is not in Genesis 1:27, but we see here in Genesis 1:27 and 28 in embryo form what all that marriage will be. And the first truth we read in Genesis 1:27 is that God created. And God tells us in the Bible that he created out of nothing. He creates with his words, light and darkness and land and water and plants and animals. God just speaks and these things come into being. And the creation that God created bursts with life and color, and it reverberates with sound and noises, and it fills with smells and textures. And all of creation depends upon God as its creator, as its source, and as the one who sustains it. But God is not finished with creation yet. He's going to create one more thing, one more living thing, unlike animals and plants. And this new living thing will be set apart as bearing God's image. Now, what is meant by bearing God's image? Image seems to, in some way, distinguish these human beings from the rest of creation. Now, it could be their ability to reason. It could be their moral decision-making. But image also seems connected to male and female, that both men and women are equal, dignified image-bearers in creation. But image is also connected in verse 26 that came before and verse 28 that's coming. It's connected with reigning in creation. The fact that they bear God's image helps them to reign in creation. The fact that we bear God's image actually constrains us to the one who created us. We represent him in creation, or we should. As image bearers, we're going to be God's representatives on the earth 
throughout creation, reigning on behalf of his name, on behalf of his purposes. Now look at verse 28 to see this further. And God blessed them, and he, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God doesn't have to, but he speaks. He blesses this man and woman, and he speaks to them. He provides a delightful charge to them. He gives them a job to do. He could have left us to just figure out our own purpose for ourselves, but instead he speaks and he tells us what he wants us to do in creation on his behalf as his image bearers, male and female. And the job is to reign on his behalf, to act as his representatives in the creation that he's just made. And specifically, we're told to do two things. The first is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The second is to subdue it and exercise dominion. The first part of our job, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, was also given to the animals a few verses before. And here's the general creative pattern that male and female image bearers would bear children and spread throughout the earth. That's the general pattern. That doesn't mean that every person will be married, and it doesn't mean that every marriage will end with biological children. Yet the bearing and raising of children is a key avenue that we fulfill God's creative design in creation and throughout the earth. But there is also a real sense, and this isn't a throwaway comment, there is a real sense in which single or childless Christians evangelize and disciple younger people to understand, to understand God's love for them and God's purpose for their lives. This is something that we all partner together to accomplish. But notice that our job is not just to spread out with new addresses throughout creation. Image bearing is about leadership. And the second part of our job is to subdue the earth, that is to bring it under bondage, and to exercise dominion, that is to reign and to rule. And verse 28 says we do that over birds, over the living things that walk the earth, and over the things that swim in the sea. Every creature God created is led by image-bearing humans. And that means we don't just exist. It means we live in such a way that creation senses our presence and flourishes because of our leadership. And so if Christians take our jobs seriously, then our lawns should be well-tended and our pets should flourish. So you rake that lawn and you pull those weeds and you pick up that trash and you plant those flowers and you teach your pets how to sit and stay. This is part of what it means for us to lead in creation. We create and we build and we tend and we write and we engineer and we heal and we design and we think. We do all these things as image bearers, as male and female, so that we might reign on God's behalf and represent Him in creation. Now, as Christians, we don't worship creation, but neither should we be indifferent to creation's flourishing. We should be the happiest enjoyers of God's creation, all the while remembering that God will redeem sin's curse on creation and will make all things new. So to sum up this first point, how do we honor God's intent 
for creation, for marriage, for image bearing in his creation. First, don't just live in creation, but bear his image. Don't just live, but consciously bear his image, represent his reign in creation. Steward, lead, reign on his behalf, represent his purposes in the world that he's made. Second, honor God's design for us as male and female, which is more challenging to do. Because some in our generation are intent on erasing gender differences or in disconnecting gender from biological sex. But there is so much beauty and texture and glory in the way that God designed both our sameness, that we're both human beings made in his image, and our differences, which we'll see more in a minute. Here's a third way we can honor his intent. View children as a blessing, not a burden. Rejoice when children are given as gifts to a marriage. But the call is not just to bear children. The call for God's children is to disciple children, to disciple them to love God and people above all else. And this is not just a call and a mandate and a charge for parents. I've watched in this church family, members of this body love and serve and encourage and pursue children. Parents, I've watched you do this for your own children and I've watched you do it for others. And single members, I've watched you tirelessly care for the children of this family, taking it upon your shoulders to stand alongside parents and help their children to love and enjoy and follow God. Together, married and single Christians can pursue God's design to fill the earth and to reign on his behalf. Now, honoring his design is harder now, but that makes it even more important that we do so. Christians must be willing to stick our heads out of the foxhole to affirm and to align ourselves with God's design in creation. But in addition for standing for the truth, which we must, we must also love our neighbors radically. We must be willing to build relationships with people. We must be willing to walk with them through pain. We must be willing to build relationships with people that hate the way that we affirm and stand for God's design in creation. All the while helping them to see Jesus and in time and with increasing measure submit themselves to God's design, which will satisfy. Here's the second point. Jump ahead to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And here we want to enjoy God's gift. In chapter 2, we're going back in time a bit chronologically, and we're double-clicking on God's creation of the second human being. You see, God looks around creation, and for the first time, he sees something that is not good, an exception to the rule. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God says, it is not good. Of all the good things that have been created, the thing that is not good is that man should be alone. And so I will set out to make a helper fit for him. The word helper is the Hebrew word ezer, which you may know. And you may also know that God uses ezer to describe himself. And it speaks of God's strength and his wisdom, his ability to protect and provide and rescue his people. And so the helper that God will provide 
is meant to meet the friendship deficit with strength and with wisdom. And in verses 19 through 20, God brings all the animals to Adam, all the birds of the sky and all the animals that walk the earth. And Adam names them all. And in so doing, he exercises authority over them. But not one of them is a faithful or suitable helper for Adam. The llamas and the pigeons and the camels just will not do. Not even a faithful dog will do. And so verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into or fashioned into a woman and he brought her to the man. As Adam sleeps this deep sleep, God removes a rib from his body and out of the rib, he fashions a helper. And notice how she's made. Adam is made from the dust of the ground. Eve is fashioned from Adam's rib. There is an order to how God creates. And this is the foundation for a husband's sacrificial leadership for his wife, which we'll see more about in Ephesians chapter 5. Now look at verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, at last, she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here is a living thing that is of the same kind as I am. She's of my bone and she's of my flesh. Remember, Eve is a fellow image bearer. She may follow Adam in the order of God's creation, but she is equal to Adam in value. She was made in God's image as female with all the dignity that that entails. But not only is she of the same kind and of equal value as an image bearer, but she is also different than Adam. There are physical attributes that are different than Adam that are at once uniquely beautiful, but also life-giving and life-bearing and life-nurturing. This heroic helper will stand alongside a sacrificial leader, and together they can fulfill God's purpose in creation. Now look at verse 24 and 25. Therefore, in light of the fact that this helper has been created, therefore, God says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, God's design is a glorious mystery. We see that mystery here, a mystery that will cause a man to leave his father and mother and to start a new family. See, he's not just leaving his family, but he's going to hold fast and cling to a wife. And the two of them will become one flesh. And the bond of marriage is so strong, so deep, so mysterious and profound that the two of them are able to create together in one flesh the kind of strength of union that blood provided between a parent and a child and their siblings. In marriage, a new family is formed. And this bond is initiated And it's strengthened and it's enjoyed through God's gift of sex. Both husband and wife are naked and unashamed. And we'll see in a moment when we get to Genesis 3 how every part of their relationship will be complicated by sin, including sex. But that doesn't diminish it as God's creative design 
and goodness. A husband and a wife can enjoy sexual intimacy that, that is selfless and giving and secure and pleasurable. And God will sometimes use this act to bring children into the world, which we've already seen as a blessing. Now, enjoying, enjoying God's good gift is hard to do if you don't have that gift personally. But notice that God says that it's not good for man to be alone. The word that's used there is alone. What's lacking here is fellowship, meaningful friendship, life and conversation with another human being. And this is important if your marriage is difficult right now or if you long to be married but aren't. Because God can supply the life-giving fellowship and the meaningful friendships that you need to sustain you. And back to the church family again, time and time again, I've watched a local church supply help and strengthen the gaps that we all have. In other words, a local church can bear the burdens and to help one another's ministry to the body and to the world to flourish. Very plainly, our relationships together in a local church can heal some of what's broken in a world that's been broken by sin. But there's more to be had. And this is Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 21. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 21. A marriage consists of two sinners, two sinners who are dragging their sin into their marriages, like dragging weeds into a garden. Adam and Eve fellowshiped with each other and with God in a perfect way. They were used to walking with God in the cool of the garden, and sin changed all that. Their rebellion against God's word, and they immediately felt the weight of their rebellion, and they hid among the trees. And God in his kindness came looking for them. Doesn't he always? Adam, where are you? Look at verse 10. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, God's pursuit of his children is not like weak parenting where a parent goes to their child and pleads with them for their obedience. God approaches his children with tender authority. Adam, where are you? And Adam, in a failure of sacrificial leader, leadership, deflects the blame to Eve. Eve, who has failed to be the heroic helper that God created her to be. And then God then turns to Eve, which, by the way, reinforces Eve's equality as a dignity, as a dignified image bearer of God, held accountable and responsible for her own sin. And Eve famously blames the serpent co-opted by Satan for this particular deception. Now, God's response to Satan and to Eve and to Adam reveals his consistent response to people in all time. Without budging from his commitment to righteous judgment, he reveals staggering mercy, except to Satan. In verse 14, God curses the serpent to a life of belly slithering and dust eating. Welcome punishment for all of us snake haters out there. 
And then comes a promise of Satan's judgment that's laced with a promise of mankind's deliverance. Look at verse 15. God says famously to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, or in some of your translations, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, Eve will become the mother of a son who will redeem all that Adam and Eve just broke. And this son will be struck in the heel by Satan, but Satan will ultimately be crushed underneath his feet. You see, God isn't finished with Eve. And what sweet relief for sinners like her and like us. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. A pair of consequences for Eve. Pain will be multiplied in childbirth, and marriage will include conflict. The heroic helper Eve will be tempted to rise up against her husband, and there will be conflict and strife in their relationship. And Adam, rather than leading sacrificially, will be tempted to rule and to dominate over his wife. And these temptations have played themselves out tirelessly in every marriage since. Now on to Adam in verses, verse 17 to 19. To Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now in the lawn weeds will grow where grass should be, and in the sidewalk cracks grass will grow. Thorns will infest the ground, and work will be more difficult, and man will need to sweat it out to make a living. But more sadly, death will come upon all things. God will keep his word that they will surely die. And so what began as a sweeping, grand adventure has quickly grown into a complex, tragic tale. Men and women created in God's image to glorify Him throughout creation, to reign on His behalf throughout the world. Men and women to fill the earth and to rule over it with justice and compassion. Marriage was supposed to be a glorious mystery. And in just a short time, sin has invaded the plot. And now work is harder than God intended. And childbearing is more painful than God intended. And the job of representing God and filling the earth and stewarding God's creation just got more difficult. And the relationships just got more complicated as sin creates a dynamic, an adverse dynamic in the relationship. Eve, Eve's heroic helping is tainted and compromised by a temptation towards competing desires. And Adam's sacrificial leadership is tainted and compromised by a temptation to domineering control. And so what are we to do? How are we to cope with sin in our marriage and with struggles in a fallen world? There's a hint in verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Adam honors his wife with the name Eve because she is the mother of all the living. And as a woman, Eve can do what no man can do. And God honors Eve. She becomes the solution to the sin problem that has been introduced into creation. The snake crusher will come through her, but it won't be through her sons Cain or Abel or Seth. The timeline will be much longer. And since the snake crusher won't enter history for another many more thousands of years, God fashions a temporary solution for his people. He kills animals and he covers his people with their skins in order to cover over their shame and their nakedness. The blood of animals will temporarily cover over the sins of God's people until the snake crusher is born. Because we need a human snake crusher, a son of Eve whose blood won't just cover over sins temporarily, but will actually take them away. A snake crusher who will undo the curse of sin that has affected our souls and our bodies and our minds and creation itself. We need a second Adam. We need a second Adam who will obey in our place instead of sin in our place. And here's where things get exciting for God's people. Because the snake crusher is unveiled as our bridegroom. That's what we will see together over the next two weeks in Ephesians chapter 5. That marriage pictures Christ and the church. And we will see that our bridegroom redeemer is also our savior. He rescues, restores, and ransoms, and he does it through the shedding of his own blood. He does it by dying on behalf of his bride. And then with a thunderclap, he escapes the grave, signaling his victory over sin and death and that ancient serpent in the garden. And now this bridegroom sits at the right hand of the father waiting for the marriage supper. In Revelation 21, we read this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God created marriage and has authority to define it and design it. Honor his intent. Enjoy his gift. Trust his redeemer. Are you in a marriage this morning that brings you joy? It is just a taste of the love that Christ has for the church and the church should have for Christ. Let the joyful things create thirst for better things to come and let the hard things increase your hope in the future. Are you in a painful marriage this morning? Remember that God's Redeemer is with you. He's always with you. He's with you in that difficult relationship. And we will see over the next two weeks how fighting for His kingdom purposes in community can sustain our hope. Are you grieving a marriage that's been lost in divorce or death? I want to urge you to plant your heart and mind in the future. As Christians, our best days are still off on the horizon where endless fellowship between Christ and the church will be ours. Are you hoping this morning to experience marriage for yourself? 
It is a good desire. But your life is not on hold until you get that thing. Your body, this body, needs your ministry. Married Christians sitting around you this morning need your discipling and they need your encouragement. The children born to parents in this church family need you to love them and they need you to show them what it looks like to follow Christ wholeheartedly in the world. Or you may be here this morning enjoying singleness, feeling called to this, having a sense that the Lord has led you to a life of undistracted service to Him. We need your continued investment in the body. We all need you to press in and to build up the church around you. And so married or single, young or older, here's what unites us. We together are Christ's bride and we always shall be. That relationship will outlive every human relationship that we experience in this life. Our marriages and our singleness can point one another to Christ. And so let's honor and enjoy marriage looking together to our Redeemer. Our marriages can reveal what the love of Christ and the church can be. And so we should delight when we have marriages around us and pray for those marriages and pray and help and hope that they would better reflect Christ's love for the church. But our singleness can also reveal Christ's love for the church. Our singular devotion, our longing, our anticipating for heaven, that can signify an astounding love for Jesus. That longing can help us see what an appropriate, engaged bride looks like as it longs, not for the now, but for the not yet. Let's think like a body over the next four weeks. A body mutually dependent on one another to do all that God has asked us to do in creation as His image bearers, male and female. A body that lives and ministers together. A body that relies upon each other. A body that proclaims the gospel here and among the nations. In Revelation 19.7, we read this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that you've given us a body to live in, that you've given us a body to remind us of who we are as your people. And I pray that you would fix our eyes over these next four weeks together on the glorious relationship between Christ and his church. We pray these things in his name. Amen.